as we get into Acts chapter 12. In this text itself, we're going to see the end of a section within the book of Acts where Luke, which is the author, is transitioning from the ministry of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria through the church of Jerusalem to ministering to the ends of the earth through the ministry of the church in Antioch, which we we looked at Antioch last week. And in doing this, what we're going to see, I think, is the main point of the text. Uh, There certainly could be other main point of the text. This is going to be the main point of the sermon, at least, is that God was growing the church in a very supernatural way, regardless of the horrific actions of an earthly king and the seemingly faithful but faithless church. Let me say that one more time. Is that God was growing his church in a very supernatural way, regardless of the horrific actions of an earthly king and a seemingly faithful but faithless church. So, with that being said, let's turn our attention to Acts chapter 12. And it says this, starting in verse 1. About this time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. When he seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to the four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on the very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the, sh- in the cell. He struck Peter on the side to wake him up, saying, Get up quickly, and the chains fell off of his hands. The angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so, and he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him, and he did not know that what was being done by an angel was real, but he thought it was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened them uh, on its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent this angel and rescued me. And the hand of Herod and from all of the Jewish people who were expecting And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked on the door on the gateway, the servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice. In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter had standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that what it was so, and she kept saying, it is his angel. Let me, let me read that part again. It says, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning them with his hands to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. 
And Herod searched for him and did not find him. And he examined the centuries and ordered that they sought to be put to, should be put to death. Then he went down from Judah to Caesarea and spent some time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyna, Tyra and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastius, the king's chamberlain. And they asked for peace because the, their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. The people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of the Lord increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray now that it would be what we focus our attention on for the next little while. And God, that you would reveal to us uh, exactly what it means uh, through the explanation of your word, God. And let my words be ones grounded in your truth and no other. We love you and we thank you. In your son's perfect and holy name, amen. My first thought as I detract just a little bit and digress here, Blastius is a fantastic name. Next person that has a boy, unless it's me because my wife would kill me, name your son Blastius, okay? Blastus. That's an awesome name. Anyway, all right. Uh, in the middle of reading it, I almost wanted to stop and say that, but I'm like, no, no, I got I to gotta keep reading. Uh, but anyway, all right. So what's going on here in 25 verses is a lot. And it's about four or five different sections. Um, and we're going to try our best to do it in a relatively short manner. Um, but overall, as I said earlier, kind of my main point of the sermon is exactly going to be that God was growing his church in a very supernatural way, way, regardless of this horrific action of an earthly king and seemingly faithful but faithless church. And in that, our focus is really going to be the true king who answers prayers. The true king who answers prayers. And in that, we begin in verse 1. And it says, about that time, Herod the king. All right, so there's a lot of times where we see the word Herod used. And so, so it doesn't cause us any confusion. I want to explain who this Herod is. This is not the same Herod who killed John the Baptist or conspired to have Jesus killed. This is Herod, Herod Agrippa I, who reigned around A.D. 41 to A.D. 44. All right, so this is a, a different Herod than that of John the Baptist or Jesus in their time and era. But this is Herod uh, that was in, in role of leadership in A.D. 41 to 44. And he's the, the son of this guy named Aristobulus. I'm saying that terribly, but that's what it is. And the grandson of Herod the Great. Historically, we know a lot about Herod the Great, but biblically, we know very little because his reign would have been before the birth of Christ. But in this, we see that he was giving these tetrarchies, which is this uh, division of a country, of the Jerusalem area by the emperor of Caligula, and allowed him to be called king. And then this next emperor named Claudius, we know more about him, provided him also Judea and Samaria to his kingdom. So this guy, Herod the king, or Herod Agrippa, is this um, essentially this guy that is over this providence or this group of area or this county, if we want to put it in our context, 
that was essentially over Judea, um, Samaria, but also he was over Jerusalem. And so we see that he's exactly, he's this king. He's this guy in leadership that is over this area in which Peter and the disciples and other Christians had been evangelizing for the last probably, let's going to say on average, about 11 years. This is the guy. This is the head honcho. This is the one that's over them all. But listen to this. This guy allowed him, this other leadership over him, this emperor, allowed him to be called king. He wasn't a king. He was simply a governor. But he was called king. We see pridefulness in even that. And that's going to make more sense later. But he's Herod the king. And if you look at the regions in which he's over, he's over Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And what do we know about these regions? That they're primarily populated by what kind of people? This is where you can respond. There's two groups of people in the New Testament, generally speaking. And which group is this? Jews. Jews. <laughs> it's okay. You 50-50 guess there, right? Um, the Jews. So this guy, King Agrippa, or Herod the king... He was truly the king of the Jews. And as we see moving forward, he desired that title to be true to the point of killing the enemies of the Jewish religious leaders. This guy is putting himself up against Christ, essentially. Because as we know about Christ, he is a prophet, he is a priest, but he is also king that was of the descendant of David. And so Herod the Agrippa, Herod the king, desiring to be the king of the Jews, essentially, to gain their favor. In verse 1, it says, he laid violent hands. So what this means is literally he arrest individuals. He began to arrest individuals. But why? Why does he begin to arrest individuals? Because as you saw in verse 3, it says, when he saw it, that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter. So what is his motivation in putting these violent hands on individuals and arresting them? And as we're going to see in just a moment, killing James, the brother of John, is to gain the favor of the people in which he ruled over, the Jewish individuals, the Jewish religious leadership. He desired to be their political leader in which they failed uh, to the feet of. And so he begins to persecute the church. And this is a significant moment because every other time in Acts so far, where we see persecution happening to the church of Christ, it is by the hands of the Jewish religious leaders. But here is a political party of the Roman government that is now persecuting them for the sake of their own agenda. So he puts violent hands on them. He begins to arrest and kill individuals, maybe even more people than James himself. We don't know, but we do know in verse 2, it says that he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, who is James, the brother of John? Well, according to Acts, he's the second known martyr that we see in the New Testament. But he's also one of the 12 disciples, and he is the first of the 12 disciples that would die for his faith. See, this wasn't by accident. 
There's no way it was. This must have been this deliberate attempt to destroy the church by systematically removing part of its leadership. This guy, King Agrippa, desired for the church of Christ, the church of believers, the, of disciples, the people of the way to be destroyed. And the way that he accomplished this or sought to accomplish this is by killing its leadership, beginning with James. And then we see the arrest of Peter. It was a systematic plan to do this. But in my opinion, when I read through this, the first question I have about chapter 12, verse 2 maybe you thought a similar thing, is why do we see in chapter 8 that Stephen gets almost two chapters in Luke's historical letter about the death and then about the death of Jesus and then the, the growing of the church. But now we see the death of James, one of the original disciples, one of the 12, receives one measly Verse to describe his death. Listen to this. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. We don't even tell, he doesn't tell us if he was beheaded or if the sword went through his chest. We don't see anything about arrest. We don't know if he fought for his life. We don't know anything about it except for he died by the sword. Because the point here isn't that James dies. The point here is to set the stage for how revolting and serious the predicament that the church had found themselves in. And it's also staging the serious moment in which Peter's current circumstances is. That James dies, Herod Agrippa the king finds much joy in it because he finds solitude by the Jewish individuals that made up his providence. It pleased them. And in doing so, he then arrests Peter. So it's a comparison here of what's going on. If James, one of the twelves that just make up the church, and are certainly providing leadership for the church, if that guy gets killed, Peter... The one that's escaped jail once before, the one that spoke every time before the council, the one that spoke on the day of Pentecost, the one going around, traveling, praying for people, receiving the Spirit of God, certainly he's about to die. Then in verse 4, it tells us that this was during the days of unleavened bread. Now certainly this is just to tell us the time frame in which this happened. But it's also to kind of make this comparison to that of the arrest of Jesus. And even so, that it says, and after the Passover, in verse 4, it says, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Because in the Passover, in the Jewish time, what would happen is, and you, you're probably all aware of this, is they had the opportunity to let one prisoner go and then pr proceed with judgment over the other one. And that happened in the day of Jesus, and Jesus is crucified, and, Bar and Barabbas is let free. And in that, what we see here is a similar approach. But we see that God was supernaturally doing something, and I would argue it's because of his will. But it's also because what we see in verse 5. It says, So Peter was kept in prison, 
but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Remember earlier, I said there's three primary themes that we've seen throughout all of the book of Acts thus far. And it's one that we're going to look at this morning. And it's the dependency of God displayed in the active prayer of the early church. We see that same thing going on here in verse 5. Peter's arrested, James is killed, and the church begins to pray for him. We don't know if they're praying for a release. We don't know what they're praying for specifically. But they're praying to God for Peter. So the stage is set, and now the matter is at hand. And the matter is exactly this. Look at verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, so right after the Passover, the same time in which Jesus would have been brought out, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, So just imagine this whatever way you want to, but Roman soldiers in full gear. Peter is sleeping in between those two guys with chains around him. We don't know if it's his feet. We don't know if it's hands. We don't know if it's both. But he's chained to these guys. Or he's chained to the wall. Not certain what it would have looked like. But he's chained to them. And then there's more guards in front of them at the door. I mean, look back at verse 4. It says, deliver him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Peter gets more people to guard him than crucified Jesus himself. The sage is set. And what we see in verse 7 is this miraculous work of God. The supernatural work of God. It says, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. A light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. We see a phrase in verse 6, and we see it again in verse 7. And it's that Peter was sleeping, and the angel woke him up. Why do you think that would be important? Why would I emphasize that? See, the magnitude of Peter's arrest is clear in how many people have arrested him. But in midst of all of this, we see that Peter is sleeping between two soldiers. He's dead asleep in the middle of the night, arrested, about to go into the the lion's den, per se, and be cast out in front of the Jewish leaders because the Passover is now over. It's the night before. There's two possibilities here. One, Peter had just been so tired that he could not sleep, do anything but sleep. I think we've all been there in life where you're so poured out and drained that you only have one option to do in life, and that is to sleep in that moment. Maybe that is Peter. Maybe, though, and I think the second option here is that Peter had come to a place where that he was trusting in God's will to be accomplished in his arrest, where he knew he would either die or God would deliver him. That either he would die or God would deliver him. Much like that of Paul when he says to live, is to, Christ, to live is for Christ and to die is to gain. That Peter had come to such a point in his life that he was okay with whatever is about to happen. My argument though would be that the second aspect of that is most likely true. That he had come to the place where he was trusting God's will would be done. But I believe personally that he had come to the place where he believed that he would be put to death just as James was. 
I don't think Peter thought he would come back to the church. I think Peter genuinely believed he was about to die. And he was okay with that. The reason why I believe that's the case is that when this Andrew pops up in here, we see that later on, says he thought he was seeing a vision, a dream. He thought he was dead asleep in the middle of the night and a dream happened and that it was just going on. Kind of like those moments where I dream that I wake up, get ready for work, and I'm on my way to work. But then my alarm goes off the third time or fifth time or seventh time. And the reality is I was asleep just dreaming that I got up and went to work. That happens often. That's what's going on with Peter here. He's not actually at a place where he's dependent upon God delivering him, but he's dependent upon God in doing whatever God desires in this moment. And I believe his heart would have told him he was going to die for his faith in this. It says, but also here, is that we also see that the actions of the church that we'll see in just a moment is that they didn't think Peter was going to be delivered either. So I believe that we, men and women, are being faithful sometimes, even when we doubt when we pray. And we're going to get to that principle here in a little bit. But in this, it's the main point that I was trying to make earlier, and I told you the main point of the sermon is that men and women are being faithful. They're praying, they're trusting, they're dependent upon but they seemingly are faithless in God delivering them. Maybe it was one arrest too many. We don't know why they come to this conclusion, but it seems like they did. But this angel shows up. He tells him to get up and get ready to dress yourself and follow me. And as he follows him, as you see in the text, it says in verse 10, They passed through the first and second guard. They came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord. And they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. So he not only gets out of the room, but he goes through another set of guards. And then he goes through another set of guards. And then there's a set of guards at this gate of the city. And then the gate just opens for them and he escapes again. That God is supernaturally and miraculously doing something through the work of this angel who is present in delivering Peter. And after he does this, after Peter is delivered from his imprisonment. Verse 11. Well, verse, end of verse 10 says, Immediately the angel left him. But what does Peter respond with in verse 11? When Peter came to himself, he, in all of that, he finally wakes up. After going through guards after guards and gates after gates, he finally wakes up. And he finally sees and says, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and all of the Jewish people who were expecting. Well, duh, Peter. You're standing in the middle of the field somewhere. Gosh, you think it would have made sense before then. But he finally come to the realization that God had supernaturally done something in delivering him. So what is his first response? It says, and when he realized this, He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Peter's released. He finally comes to. He realized God did this. 
And then he goes to the house of Mary. The reason why, before I get to the house of Mary, the thing I want to point out here is in all of this, Peter didn't do anything to save himself. He gets woken up by an angel. He's dead asleep in the middle of the night. Angel wakes him up, says, put on your clothes. He puts on his clothes. Wrap yourself in the cloak. He wraps himself in the cloak. Put on your sandals. Put on the sandals. Follow me. He follows him. He goes through one guard, goes through another set of guards. Those go through, goes through a gate. And then eventually, when it's all said and done, the angel's not there. He realizes finally that God did something. Not always. But often as we share the gospel with people, invite them to church, and even as we raise our children, I think salvation looks at a very similar way for some. And if we're going to reflect on our own personal lives, though there's certainly a moment where we come to this realization that we were sinful in need of a father, but in all reality, many of us growing up in church, this was much of our salvation story, is that from years we grew up in church learning of God, learning of Christ, being taught the word, being discipled in some way or another. And in all of those things, we finally come to this conclusion, hey, yes, Jesus actually did save me. Peter is certainly here too. So the encouragement I would have in that, in in all of this really, and this is the first thing I want to make a point here, is as we depend upon God to save lost souls, as individuals and as a church, man, don't give up. Let's not lose heart. Let's pray for God to redeem, for God to save, for God to lighten and soften the hearts of man. Let's pray for the salvation of our children that do not know Christ. Let's pray for God to, to develop those of our children that do know Christ. Let's pray for those who come to know Christ, to grow in Christ. And let's do the work that it takes to get them there. But let's not give up on what God can be doing in the life of individuals because we don't know how God is going to work in their lives. At some point in their life, though, I think if we're faithfully preaching the word of God into them, they're going to find themselves at a point in which they realize that God has redeemed and saved them, though they're not certain how they got on that road. Then we see Peter landing at Mary's home. The mother of John, whose name was Mark. We see him again in verse 25. We're not going to talk about John Mark this week. But we see that he ends up at Mary's home. We don't know much about Mary's husband or John Mark's father. But what we do know is that his mother was clearly a Christian that had a home that would have been large enough to accommodate many people for prayer. This was a common practice of the early churches because especially in Jerusalem, they didn't have the opportunity now to gather in the temple, in the corridors of it because of the opposition of the church. And so they're gathering in homes for the teaching of God's word, for prayer, for all of these things, but specifically in prayer now. And he's going back to her home and he finds the people gathered for prayer. And I would argue what they're praying for, as we saw in verse, let's see, verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayers for him was made by God by the church. That these are the, some of the individuals, at least, that are gathered together praying for Peter's delivery or Peter's uh, God would comfort him in his death. I'm not sure. We don't know what the heart of their prayer was. But regardless, they were praying to a sovereign God to do what God desired in the life of Peter. And they were praying for him. 
In the midst of praying for him, what a miraculous thing happens is he shows up and he starts knocking on the door. But look at verse 13. This is a pretty interesting story. It says, And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Now, pause here. That's so significant. This is a Christian community. And I would argue that in no other Christian community would a servant girl be named by name in a historical book. But it's significant. Because arguably, as we see her joy in Peter's deliverance, she is too a follower of Jesus. See, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. There's no distinction between male and female, slave and free, that in Christ we're all the same. And we see this woman named here, this girl named here. I think that's specifically why. But verse 14 says, recognizing Peter's voice. So she had heard Peter a lot to recognize his voice. She heard his voice and with joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. It's kind of often like if um, Sarah or I have to go out of town and Lottie's home and Lottie sees a car and even the boys and tonight really doesn't do this, but the boys or Lottie, they, they see the car and they just start freaking out and they run to me or run to Sarah or run to the others and say, mom is home or dad is home. I, I mean, parents, we, we experience this in some way. They're just joyful in that moment that the at person is home. That's what this servant girl responds with. She, he's knocking at the door. She doesn't even see him. She only hears him. But knowing his voice so well, she knows that Peter is there. So she's joyful. She, she goes back to tell everyone that is gathered in this home praying for this man. And look what they say. They said to her, you are out of your mind. That's encouraging. Christian community. Praying for someone, declaring a possible miraculous moment in which God redeemed and saved one of their people from the enemy. You are crazy. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. Now, there's some theories and thoughts on it is his angel. Um, Some believed in this time that spirits stayed around for a little bit longer And so kind of like a ghost mentality. Um, Then some thought that they had guarding angels that would take on the manifestation of that individual that would kind of maybe deliver news to people that they loved. um, But regardless, they says he's dead. Regardless of what the view is, they thought Peter was dead. That there's no way that this man is alive knocking at the door. We're going to rather believe that this is his ghost or this is his guardian angel at the door knocking. Instead of believing against Peter himself and God saved him just as he saved him from prison before. That this is a death angel or this is a, a ghost. But Peter continued knocking. Peter's chilling at the door in all of this knocking. Sure, hearing what's going on inside. They opened up and they saw him and were amazed. In this moment, I would say that they began to cry and praise God for the deliverance of Peter. We don't exactly know what the response is, but what we do know In verse 
17, but motioning them with his hands to be silent. All joyful noise happened in this moment. Amazed, shocked, praising God. Peter has to silence them so he can talk. But before we hear what happens, I want to go back. And I want to look at the response of these people. We see joyful praising and loud noise and all of that happening after they visibly see Peter. But these are people gathered praying to God for Peter that are now doubting that God could actually save Peter. And so much so that they believed a ghost or an angel that was his guardian angel was at the door and not actually Peter. That's why when I told you that the main point of the sermon is going to be that the seemingly faithful but faithless church. They're faithful. They're praying to God. They're they're depending upon God. But man, don't they lack the faith that God can do what God can do. I want us to find joy in that right now. Because if we're going to be honest, we too do the same thing. We pray for God to save said person or God to heal said person or for God to do something in our lives or the lives of those we love. And in the midst of it, we know that God can do theoretically and theologically. We know that God can do whatever God wants to do. But in our heart, we still doubt. See, often I believe that God answers prayers though we doubt him. I believe this is true in the case in which we may doubt, but understand that God is powerful and big enough to answer our prayers if he desires. Oftentimes, our prayers is for us to align ourselves with the dependence upon the God who answers prayers. God doesn't magically answer our prayers because we have enough faith. God answers prayers because God is sovereignly doing something. But we pray to God regardless, because even in our doubt, even in our darkest moments, we trust that God is God and God's going to do what God wants to do. We may doubt, we may suffer, but God is still God and we hold to that. And we're much like these crowd of individuals. When God does something, we're like, no, there's no way that God did that. But in all reality, God does what God does. Then in 16 through 17. It says, we see this answered prayer, right? We see him quieting the people down. But he says, he describes to them everything that had brought him out of the prison. And we we don't want to recap any of that. But what we want to focus on now is that phrase he says. Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Now, we know it's not the James that just got killed, right? So that guy's out. Uh, So what James is he talking about? The James he's talking about is James, the brother of Jesus, the one that wrote the book of James. Okay, um, This is James, the brother of Jesus. But he also says to all the brothers, not the brothers of Jesus, but the disciples, the apostles, the followers of Jesus, the leadership of the Jerusalem church. And what's so significant here, I believe is the case at least, is we don't know if there's been a transfer of power before this point of the, the church of Jerusalem from Peter to James, or we don't know if this is the moment in which it happens. But what we see throughout all of the rest of the New Testament, for example, in Galatians 2.9, 
But in Acts 15 and in Acts 21, that James is one of these key pillars of the church of Jerusalem. So at this point in his life, Peter is either passing on the mantle or the mantle has already been passed on to James to be the key leader or the lead pastor, if we're going to put our terminology on it, or the lead elder, if our terminology, over the church of Jerusalem. Man, this is crucial. Why is this crucial? Because this is a moment in which it's not an apostle in the sense of the original 12 that's leading the church. But it's an apostle. James is an apostle because he saw the risen Savior. But it's, a, it's an individual that come to know Christ after his resurrection, not before, that is now leading the church of Christ. It's a transferring of the, the commitment in which God was making to his church. Also teach us much about leadership and the importance of multiple elders and all of those things. We're not going to get into that this morning. But what we see in all of this is him passing this power or this power being passed to him already. Next thing we see is Herod is not, was not king. Starting in verse 18, it says, Now when they came, there was little disturbance among the dis- soldiers over who had become of Peter. And Herod searched to him and found, could not find him. He examined the sentries and ordered that they would be put to death. They went down from Judea. To, and then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So what's going on here is very simply that we have Herod addressing the soldiers because when the soldiers woke up the next morning, they had no idea, no clue what happened. There was little, little disturbance among them. They didn't know Peter was gone. They woke up in the morning. They, they realized that Peter isn't there. And when they realized Peter isn't there, they, let, they have to let Herod know. And as they let Herod know, then Herod kills them because that's the response of a moment like this. Thankfully for you guys in the Air Force, it's not like you fail your mission, you die. But I guess if you fly a plane, you could. But anyway, um, it's not like you, the, the U.S. government is going to put you to death because you didn't do your job right. These people die in this moment. And as they die in this moment, Herod's kind of just mad at everyone. And as he leaves Judea, he goes to Caesarea. And he goes there. And we know that he's there during this time period. And in this time period, it says in verse 20, Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyra and Sidon. We don't know why he's mad at them. Maybe he's still a little mad at the individuals that let Peter go. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. We don't know. But he's mad at this specific group of people. And they come to him in one accord, having persuaded the best name in the world, Blastius, Blastus, the king's chamberman. They asked for peace because their country depended on the, the country for food. All right. So they, they, talk, they talk with Blastius. And they like, look, we need, we, need a, we need to talk to him. We, we need you to do what you can do to get us at a place so where we can talk to this man. And he makes it happen. And this two groups of people, Tyra and Sidon, that, or this independent people, uh, essentially, these uh, individuals, there's this free self-governing cities in the coast of Seneca, of Phoenicia, within the province of Sinar, um, and they're just independent people, and they depended upon this king to provide food for them. Okay, and so they need to get a a moment to talk to him to smooth all of this over. And listen to how it all goes down and how they smooth it over with him. 
On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. He took his seat upon the throne, and he delivered an oration to them. Remember, this is Herod Agrippa, Herod the king. Agrippa the king, King Agrippa. However you want to phrase that, this is who he is. He thinks of himself more highly than he should. He took on the title and role as king when he was no king. He gets all dressed up. He sits on his throne and he begins to give this oracle to them. And what is their response? And the people were shouting. Most likely it was more than just these two groups of people. He probably called all of his people up for this too. The voice of a God and not of man. Man, you think, for most of us, we would just have to correct somebody if they thought that about us. Or maybe we wouldn't. But Herod certainly does not. And what does Herod not do? He doesn't correct them. He doesn't quiet them down. He gets lost in his pridefulness and arrogance as the king of these people. Then it says immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down. See a second moment in which an angel of the Lord does something in this text. Um, we're going to see in just a second. It's not a visible angel of the Lord striking him down like that of Peter. But it says here, this is how Luke is explaining what God did. The angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So what is the result of King Agrippa's pridefulness and arrogance? Luke expresses it that King Herod was put to death and caused and delivered by God an act of judgment on, on him because of this. But history tells us and this isn't contrary to what Luke is saying. Luke was telling us what God did in history through a guy named Josephus, which is another historian uh, a century later, around the same time period at least, um, tells us that Herod Agrippa would not uh, repudiate the adorations of the crowd. He wouldn't give away their flattery. He wouldn't cast it to the side, giving glory to God. And in that time... In that moment, or soon after, he was seized with a violent internal pain. And he was carried to his home, and after five days, he died. Right after this happened, he gets struck with an internal abdomen-type pain, goes home, and in five days, dies. And what Luke is saying is not contrary to what history would tell us, but Luke is saying, look, in no other terms, Luke is saying that God killed this man for his arrogance and for his not giving God, God the glory. And this we see very simply, there was really only one true king of the Jews. This man considered him a king. And five days after, he would not shake off the praise of man he dies by the hand of God. And once again, God proves himself to be a king. Then the last two verses. This is the transition. This is where Barnabas and Saul enters back into the scene. Okay, um, Verse 24, actually though, this is the word of God increased and multiplied. This is the conclusion of the section that started after Stephen's stoning. 
And throughout the book of Acts, we see sections, okay? And Stephen Stonin, after that, it began this section where they took the gospel not only in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria. And this is the conclusion of that section. And then in verse 25 is this reintroduction of Saul and Barnabas, okay? But in 24, we see the word of God increase and multiply. He's just saying, look, God was still working in the life of his church. In the midst of persecution, God was working. And when God took the persecution out of the way, he was still working he was redeeming and saving individuals that's what luke is just telling us here plain and simple now barnabas and saul and then john mark go back to antioch that's harder the reason why that's harder is that if you look back at verse 20 it says they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food now does anybody remember what happened at the end of chapter 11 and why Paul, Saul and Barnabas was going to Jerusalem? What? A famine. And the church collected funds and money and food to send to the church of Jerusalem to take care of the church. So a famine had hit the land. And so... This, this story in chapter 12 is not something that happened right after chapter 11. See, Luke did not write this in, 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 um, in order by events. Luke is grouping some of these things together. And in this, he grouped 12 into uh, chapter 11 on because it's talking about Jerusalem, where 13 on is talking about Antioch and the ends of the earth. Okay, And so when you look, it says, And Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them... John, and whose other name was Mark, it's, that verse right there is tying back into verse 30 in chapter 11. But most likely, he, they weren't there during the accounts of chapter 12, but they were there during the accounts of chapter 15. But the way Luke accounted for this story was by situations and location, not in uh, chronological order, okay? And so this was a reintroducing of Barnabas and Saul and the reason why that's important for us is because that's where we end in this part of Acts. Because we're ending our sermon series in Acts 1 through 12 with the ending of the Church of Jerusalem. Not that the Church of Jerusalem ceased to exist, but it ceased to be talked about regularly in the book of Acts. Because God, through the inspiration of Luke in recording historical accounts, has told us about how God reached Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And in January of next year, we're going to pick back up and we're going to see how he began to reach the ends of the earth through the efforts of Barnabas and Saul. With all of that being said, it's a lot of information here. Says, but I want us to really just remember, as I said earlier, God was growing his church in a very supernatural way, regardless of the horrific actions of an earthly king and seemingly faithful but faithless church. And as we transition from the book of Acts, the application I have for us this morning is not necessarily completely based on this, but just what we've looked at over the last six months. And there's really just three basic things that I've called into memory multiple times this morning. It's first and foremost, let us have a similar dependence of God that we have seen displayed in the active prayer of the early church. Let us pray like they prayed. Let's 
trust in God like they trusted in God. And we're not going to be perfect in this. It's certainly we don't look at Scripture and say we should be like this individual because the individual we're supposed to be like is Christ and no one else. But in all reality, we can look at these attributes of the early church and say, this is how we want Redeemer Church to be known as. And we should be known as a people that pray together. Let's understand and trust in God to do some supernatural work through the empowerment of leadership of the Holy Spirit. Man, we may not see people walk out through guards shankled to them. But what we will certainly see is that God will put people in our path that need to hear the gospel. And that we have the opportunity through his empowerment to share the gospel with them. Or we can meet the needs of individuals in such a way that it would soften their hearts so they would be receptive of the gospel itself. All of these things are supernatural. And then let's commit to doing a similar work of the early church, and that is to physically proclaim the gospel and make disciples, which was God's ordinary means of redeeming his people. And so very simply put, let us pray, let us depend, and let us do. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you this morning. We pray now that your word would go forth and it would impact the way that we live our lives. God, we pray now as we sing one last song to you, be glorified in all that we do. In your son's perfect and holy name, amen.